Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. As you remember, our podcast is dedicated to the discussion of recent publications in the field of Russian and Eurasian Studies, and today I'm going to be talking to Julie Wilhelmsen, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Julie will be talking about her recent book called Russia's Securitization of Chechnya, How War Became Acceptable. So it is my pleasure to introduce Julie Wilhelmsen, the author of Russia's Securitization of Chechnya. Hello, Julie. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. The winter in Norway is heavy, but I'm, I'm surviving it. You know, we're having a snow blizzard today in Boston. Really? Well, that's a, that's a usual thing here. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope it's better on the other side of the Atlantic today. Um, so we always ask our convers- start our conversation by asking our speaker to tell a little bit about their background and how they came to do Russian and Eurasian studies. Yeah, so I have lived my entire life in, in Norway, but I grew up in kind of a, a collective house with many families living together and working in, uh, in an international organization. My, my parents worked in this uh, international organization, which used to be called the Oxford Group, then it was called Moral Rearmament, and then Initiatives of Change. And this was um, a very idealistic international organization working for reconciliation between countries, religions, ideologies, so and very, very interesting, but also quite heavy, you know, when you're a, a, a child, basically not being able to take in the big, big uh, world out there. Uh, but I think that's an important part of my, my background. So there were always lots of discussions about world problems, how to change the world, how you should start with yourself if you want to change the world. Uh, and in fact, quite a special focus on the Soviet Union at that time because this organization had very many contacts with the dissident movement, uh, particularly in, in, in Russia. So that's kind of a, a background where I, from, I was very young, was quite conscious of that the world is um, big and interesting, but also full of problem, problems which need to be solved. Um, then when I, was, when I finished school, I went off to work with Mother Teresa in in Calcutta, basically to try to find out, you know, who, who am I? <laughs> what do I want to do uh, with uh, my life? Um, and then I concluded that I'm actually not going to be a sister of a charity, but rather <laughs> go back to, to uni- start university. So I did history, Russian, political science, um, and I also went to study language in, uh, in Russia. And then since then, I've worked as a, a researcher at NUPI, uh, the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, and at the Norwegian Defense Establishment. And now for the last 
15 years at Nupi again. Um, and then I'm married and I have uh, five kids. So, um, yeah, it's it's a fairly in- intensive life and a good combination it of... It does sound uh, very intensive. Yeah, <laughs> family life and really a, a heavy engagement with understanding and explaining uh, Russian politics and in particular conflict and security related issues in Russia. And how did Chechnya come into the picture? When I did my Norwegian master's, which is more like an MPhil in the Norwegian context, I was uh, preoccupied by trying to explain why uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a conflict emerged in Chechnya and not in Tatarstan, which was another uh, Russian federal republic, which was fairly nationalistic and there was a mobilization, there was a strong nationalist movement, but there was never a separatist movement. So that, that was my initial interest. And then I think... For those of us who grew up with this image of the Soviet Union as, as one country, really the most interesting thing was is this discovery of uh, how uh, complex and how many different ethnicities, religions that actually lived within the Soviet Union and how they their, they survived. And in the Chechen case, it it's a very interesting story of how there is this kind of parallel governance. You know, the Chechens uh, live under the Russian Empire, then they lived under the Soviet Union, but at the same time they had this kind of parallel self-governance structure where they kept their religion, their ways of doing things, and of course that is the very interesting and terrible story of of the Chechens uh, once the Soviet Union falls apart and they try to make this parallel, the, the second layer, the the real layer of, of, of Chechen society and bring it out into a, to make a state in, in, in Chechnya. So I suppose in the beginning, quite uh, nearly a, a compassion for, for the difficult situation that the uh, Chechens have lived under. And they are definitely kind of a, a, a punished people, historically speaking. Uh, but then gradually, the more you work with a conflict like that, you, you understand that there are always two sides to a conflict. And then uh, with my PhD, really wanting to find out how conflicts come about. And also, uh, I think very much triggered by this very intense labeling of Chechnya as a terrorist threat during the Second Chechen War and how how it happened so quickly and how suddenly everybody agreed that Chechnya was a terrible terrorist problem and that war was necessary. So that kind of took me up to what then became the basis of this book. So could you please tell us about um, how you came to write this book? What got you interested in this problematic and, uh, you know, how your research developed over the years of working on it? Yeah, I... I was interested uh, first in this quite empirical observation of the difference between the First and the Second Chechen War. Uh, Because during uh, the First War, uh, Russians came to reject the war. When they saw the misery that befell the Chechen population, there was a movement in Russian society against the war. 
when the second Chechen war was launched, it was acceptable to the entire uh, Russian population and the political elite. So that was my, uh, uh, my the question I was interested in. How, how come that one war is unacceptable in the Russian polity, whereas one war becomes very acceptable? So, uh, and the fact is that these two wars, in terms of cruelty uh, towards the population, were just as as a start. So my uh, my question is kind of how how does it how how come that a war becomes uh, acceptable? How does a war come to be seen as a necessary, even urgent and legitimate undertaking, even though the human suffering which happens when a war is undertaken is is so gross? Uh, and my answer in the book uh, is that this happens through a broad collective rephrasing, in this case of Chechnya, as an existential terrorist threat to Russia. And my main focus is uh, on linguistic practices. So I'm interested in how this process of representing uh, Chechnya as very dangerous, very different to Russia, then gradually uh, creates this acceptance for a new war and for very uh, heavy violence to be employed against uh, Chechnya. And secondly, how these uh, representations of Chechnya as different and, and dangerous kind of preclude um, other types of practices such as negotiation, which of course is what happened during the first Chechen war, they were able to negotiate an end to the war uh, with the Chechen separatists. So my argument is that this rephrasing uh, process happens, of course, in language, uh, in the way that we collectively speak about ourselves and others. So in the Russian case, in the Chechen case, how the Russians in many layers of talk uh, talk about uh, the Chechens uh, and how they talk about themselves. And that this, this uh, talk then creates the understanding of what Chechnya is. And a core point here is that this is not only talk. It has very, very dramatic consequences for the policies that can be pursued against this group of people, this, this piece of territory, or single members. And one example which I use throughout the book is the example of the Chechen president, Maskhadov, who in a certain period of time was spoken about as a reliable person, as somebody that the Russian leadership could do uh, business with, cooperate with, but, then, uh, but who then was killed in 2005, uh, um, in a very brutal way, and he was interred in, a, in an unmarked grave as a terrorist. So I kind of follow how this figure, who's actually the only democratically elected president in, in Chechnya ever, uh, how he is moved from, discursively from a position of some uh, reliable partner to a terrorist through the way in which he is spoken about in, in Russian texts. So that's that's the, the key focus is, is to show how uh, an undertaking such as war is legitimized and made reasonable 
through these representations, these uh, linguistic practices. I see. And understand it correctly that your book is structured according to different types of texts. So you have a chapter on official representation, on historical representation, uh, elite, expert, and journalistic. So are these chapters dedicated to the study of different kind of texts then? Absolutely. And, and, uh, and this is where I, t I take my cue from secur securitization theory, Copenhagen School securitization theory. But I, I, I changed this theory because in securitization theory, the speech act, which sets off the securitization process, is uh, portrayed as uh, one single utterance, for example, by the politi political leadership. But in my reformulation of this theory, I say that securitization is a much, much broader social process. It is not grounded in one leader, but it is much more of a collective, intersubjective endeavor. And very many social actors take part. So in the book, I go through texts. I go through the texts of... Uh, the Russian le leadership uh, during uh, the core period of spring, summer, autumn 1999 and very carefully go through hundreds of texts and see what kind of representation of Chechnya was drawn uh, uh, by the, the Russian leadership at the time. And I find that it is a very, a very frightening and very consistent image of Chechnya as an existential threat uh, to Russia. Then I, in the next chapter, look into uh, how Chechnya has been represented historically over time. Uh, and I find that uh, in classical literature, Russian classical literature, of course, the Chechens have been portrayed as, as, uh, as uh, villains, as uncivilized, And, uh, and brutal. I find that in, in the Soviet period, you have the same similar type of epithets attached to them, like terrorists, traitors, and so on. And also during the 1990s, the Chechens and Chechnya was portrayed as bandits, criminals, and so on. So the point of going through this genealogy of how Chechnya has been represent represented is to say that securitization of an issue doesn't happen in empty discursive space. It kind of, when, for example, Putin says that Chechnya is the center of international terrorism in the world, that resonates with uh, res representations in this broad discursive terrain, which actually goes uh, many hundred years back in time. And then I I move on to uh, look on uh, look at yet another set of texts, which is how uh, Chechnya was spoken about and portrayed in uh, the Russian Federal Assembly, uh, because it's often and in fact it's kind of an interesting observation to make in terms of how Russian uh, politics are, are produced, because we often think that you know Putin sits on top and he. Uh, he decides everything. But what I discover when I go through the texts from the, the members of the, the Russian Federal Assembly is that 
the making uh, of, of Chechnya as an existential terrorist threat to Russia is very much produced through the text of uh, the members of the Federal Assembly. In fact, very often their ways of talking about uh, Chechnya is uh, even harsher uh, than what you find in, in the official text, in the text of the Russian, Russian leadership. And also their uh, suggestions of what one should do to Chechnya are, um, are even more radical than the suggestions you find in, in uh, the Russian leadership's text. So what I'm trying to, to say is that whereas Copenhagen School securitization theory would construe this as merely audience to the securitization, I'm trying to show that what we think about as audience is actually securitizers, meaning that these texts actually contribute to make Chechnya look like uh, something very different and dangerous uh, to Russia. And then in the next cha uh, chapter, I look into what I call expert texts, which are texts by, by people like me, researchers, and how they, how they talked about and portrayed Chechnya and the relationship between Chechnya and Russia in this period. And again, the quite astonishing finding is that these expert texts in Russia uh, at that time are very, extremely politicized. And also, I, I try to kind of look into how the authority which such people as experts bring with them in terms of historical and philosophical references and so on, how they really uh, contribute to making Chechnya stand out as this uh, existential threat towards Chechnya. And then in the final batch of texts I look into, that is uh, journalistic texts. And that was, in a way, the most interesting uh, aspect, because my initial idea was that, and, I, and that was an idea which emerged from knowing uh, a lot about the first Chechen war, because one of the reasons why uh, the first Chechen war was not successfully securitized and there was opposition against that war in Russia was that the media was portraying uh, the misery of the Chechens and the media was really painting a picture of the Chechens as fellow human beings. So my initial idea was to kind of try to pin down, you know, how, how did... And this was already, this was in 1999, so it was before strong media control in Russia. How did the media try to contradict, you know, the, the, the Putin leadership's images of the Chechens as terrorists, kind of? Uh, but what I found was, uh, in fact, the opposite of what I expected. I found uh, that uh, the Russian media in, in this period was a core securitizing actor in the lingo of, uh, of securitization theory. But really, if you, and I, I went through uh, hundreds of newspaper articles and then I searched for, you know, what kind of uh, adjectives are linked to words such as Chechnya and Chechens, what kind of pictures were put in the paper when the war uh, uh, started, uh, what kind of face were the Chechens left with if you if you sought to understand what Chechnya was through the pages of Russian newspapers? And 
the fact is that the Chechens are left with this terrorist face. Uh, there is hardly one picture uh, in in Russian newspapers describing Chechens merely as you know fellow citizens or or human beings. Uh, rather, the face of the Chechens as and Chechnya as terrorist is really detailed in Russian. Uh, newspaper accounts by descriptions of cruelty, uh, their cruelty, um, and at the same time by um, descriptions of Russia in a very different way from during the first war. Uh, this time around, Russia is uh, without guilt, without blame. Russia is providing, you know, humanitarian aid. Russia is the good side, the Chechen side, and all parts of the Chechen separatist movement are terrorists. There is no distinguishing between the moderate camp or uh, the radical fighters in Chechnya. So that was uh, a final layer of texts which I, I looked through on the basis of this understanding that a process of securitization, making something stand out as a threat, as an existential threat to us, is not... Uh, a single intentional event undertaken by one political leader. It's really a very broad social process, um, which then makes war seem acceptable to yeah in the Russian uh, policy, broadly speaking. Um, this is really an um, incredible narrative, and it is so surprising. Um, so do you focus your inquiry on a specific period of time? Is it the interwar period? I do uh, the actually the, the the first chapter the first empirical chapter in the book I make a kind of pilot study on the interwar period and the reason why I do that is that in the interwar period between 1996 and 1999 really Chechnya is desecuritized as an issue in 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 Russian discourse at least if you look at the way they spoke about Chechnya on the top leadership level uh, in Chechnya. So that's kind of a pilot and counter case to the rest of the book. So what I find in that period is a very, what I call a discourse on reconciliation. I go through the statements by the Russian leadership on Chechnya in this period, and I find that, that Chechnya is uh, portrayed as, as a partner, uh, Maskadov is portrayed as a reliable person. Uh, and at the same time, when they speak about why the first Chechen war went so wrong, why everything uh, became terrible, they speak about Russian guilt. So it's, it's a very unusual way of uh, speaking about Russian identity, but very uh, typical for the 90s, that Russia is kind of portrayed as a weak entity, entity as a guilty entity, and Chechnya really as a, as a partner and as a victim. So this way of talking about Chechnya enabled very different policies from the Kremlin towards Chechnya in this period. For example, all troops were pulled out of Chechnya. So no, you know, when Chechnya is a friend, you don't need to have 100,000 troops standing uh, in that republic. And there was cooperation uh, to establish, for example, common training of police, 
um, uh, there were, of course, crucially the, the, the negotiations with with, uh, with Chechnya. So the claim is then that the desecuritization of Chechnya in this period made these practices of negotiation and cooperation possible. And then that kind of contrasts uh, the rest of the uh, empirical uh, um, chapters, which are based on the period from 1999, where Chechnya is then rearticulated as this dangerous terrorist threat. Yes, and then in the final chapters of the book, I move into uh, looking at the, uh, as you would say in securitization theory, the uh, emergency measures that this understanding of Chechnya as, a, as an existential terrorist threat enabled. And also there, I, I, I try to give a, a, a contribution to, to Copenhagen School securitization theory, because in their setup, they kind of state that when something is securitized, it enables, for example, the political leadership to move beyond uh, the rules that otherwise bind and undertake emergency measures. But they don't really um, provide a theoretical explanation for what the link is. Whereas if you do a discourse theoretic reinterpretation of securitization theory, you can provide a link between the way uh, the issue is securitized, the way it is talked about, how, in my case, how radical the representations of Chechnya were, and the type of emergency measures that you are then able to undertake. So my claim and what I try to demonstrate in the final three chapters of the book is that the very, very, the representation of Chechnya as very different and dangerous and as, you know, uh, a terrorist threat which is capable of doing everything against us, that that uh, legitimizes the very brute use of force which Russia then undertakes against Chechnya from 1999 onwards. So I, I discussed that in three chapters. The first one is about, uh, is called sealing off Chechnya. And then I try to empirically document, you know, what, what actually happened because the, that has really not been done. <laughs> in the case of the, of the Chechen war. So I document the sealing off of, of Chechnya and also the sealing off of Chechens in Russian society. Uh, and then I try to document to some extent that the all-out bombing uh, of large parts of the Republic, and which again, of course, reduced Grozny to rubbles uh, in 1999. And the third chapter is on the cleansing, what they call the cleansing of Chechnya, these were uh, operations that affected the lives of nearly every single person in Chechnya and included practices such as massacres, torture, disappearances and extrajudicial killings on a, on a large scale. So I try to, to provide a, a rough overview over the scope of violence during the war. But my primary uh, theoretical uh, concern is to show that there is a link between how Chechnya and the Chechens were spoken about, how they came to be seen merely as terrorists and not humans, and how this seemed to make these very, very brute and violent uh, practices 
necessary and legitimate to the Russian population. So that's, that's uh, I suppose, something which is also contributions uh, contribution to much of the discourse theoretic work that very often you stop at analyzing language whereas i really wanted to say that you know language matters how we come to see certain groups as so different and dangerous uh, to us how that happens with language but also how that is implemented in very concrete material practices, such as bombing, torture, and so on. So I, I try to, to explain the link between those two. And of course, that's not a causal link, but it is a claim that these representations and, and the kind of how radical these representations are, they stipulate not a particular type of action, but they make certain action, actions more logical and legitimate than others. So if you have branded someone a terrorist, a terrorist, it's more logical and legitimate to kill him than to negotiate uh, with him. So that's what I'm trying to, to catch. And of course, and you have already mentioned this, the um, representation of Chechens as fundamentally different, other and threatening is very much in line with the portrayal in Russian classical literature. So I was wondering how the study of Pushkin, Lermontov and Tolstoy fit into your research on security and what did it contribute to your work? Well, it contributes to the understanding of uh, that these categorizations of the world are our way of seeing other so, uh, ourselves and other social objects in the world is you know builds on a genealogy of how these categories have presented over a long period of time therefore it is you know there is uh, such a thing as habitual enemies Uh, and in the in the case of, of uh, the Chechens, it is significant that they have had this status as different and dangerous in Russian uh, literature for for several hundred years. So what you find when you look at texts over time is that it's never a blue copy. It's never exactly the same representation but that new representations build on old representations in some, some ways. Uh, so there will always be change, but there, there is always also uh, continuity. So that's the interesting thing about looking further back uh, into text, is that even these classical texts kind of feed into the uh, securitization which goes on in 1999. Uh, and give kind of um, credibility uh, to Putin's claim that Chechnya, or, or Yeltsin's claim actually, that, that uh, Chechnya is the center of, of uh, international terrorism. Because it, you know, it, it kind of fits, oh yes, it's the Chechens again. So, uh, so that's why it's important to, to look at how um, this uh, enemy or friend is, is represented Uh, historically and further back in time in time because it it matters and as for the media do you did you focus on the study of some specific media outlets 
Yeah, I did. Uh, I did Niezavitima Gazeta, and I actually did because we have them here in paper from from those years. So I actually did kind of day to day reading of Niezavitima Gazeta as well as Rasiska Gazeta, which is kind of the more the official paper. But Niezavitima, because it it's it was a paper which had really good and independent coverage of the first Chechen war. So that's why I, I chose that paper. Uh, and then, in addition, I, I uh, spent a lot of time searching, actually, across the, the Russian newspaper landscape in a, in a specific database, uh, database, which has collected uh, a, a massive amount of, of uh, newspaper articles from that time, searching, you know, just on the word Chechnya or terror or... So, basically, going through um, papers and... And, and quite broadly, I, I, I realized that it's uh, when you want to understand how, you know, the guy in the street comes to see some group which he might not even have been in contact with ever in his life as, as different and dangerous and, uh, and accepting that, yes, maybe a war is, is necessary to, uh, to get rid of this threat then it, it happens uh, through a lot through the media and it matters, the context of things matters. So the titles of the newspaper articles matter, the pictures matter, what kind of images are there together with the text. Uh, so that's something you can catch when you do, when you sit and just read and look into the, every single issue of a newspaper, which you cannot if you use a more quantitative uh, approach and just let you, you get the whole context which you wouldn't get in a quantitative uh, approach where you just looked for you know certain words and not the entire text around that word. And how for example does the work of Anna Politkovska fit in with your view on uh, securitization? Well she of course does a very uh, <laughs> she has a totally different approach she's not a, 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 an academician she's a she's a journalist so you could say that her efforts to really show the crude violence and injustice of the Second Chechen War is in a way similar to what I do when I, at the, in the last chapters of the book, try to, to document you know, the extent of, of violence being undertaken during the Second uh, uh, Chechen War. But apart from that, of course, our approaches are, are very different. And really, when you work with discourse theory, you're very conscious that you're not trying to find out why things happen. So I'm not explaining why the Chechen war happened, but I'm explaining how it became acceptable. And of course, when you're a journalist, for example, you very often attribute intention to the actors that we study. When you do discourse theory, you, you are not interested in intention. And in fact, you're not so interested in actors as such. You're interested in how people talk about uh, the world, in this case, how they talk about Chechnya and Chechens, what kind of representation, what kind of classifications that emerges from this talk and what the consequences are of this talk. So this is a fundamentally constructionist understanding of how the social world 
works. An agency is not, you know, pinned on an actor and what that actor intends to do. You are actually looking into the agency which lies in these discursive patterns. What happens when in all these different texts something is spoken about as difficult and dangerous? What happens is that we all think that it is legitimate to undertake security measures against this group or this piece of territory or whatever it is. So it's a, it's a very different focus in that way. And you seem to make it very clear in your book that you want to distinguish between the discourse on war and the discourse on terrorism. And you bring up examples of how the war on terror actually legitimized various breaches of human rights. So could you elaborate a little more on your position about this? Yeah, and I suppose that's also where I take my cue from securitization theory initially, because, I mean, one of their core points, uh, Barry Bazan, Oliver and Jack Deville, is, uh, is that when uh, something has been accepted as an existential threat to your security, then you can move beyond the rules that otherwise bind. This can be democratic rules, but they can also, of course, be rules like, uh, you know, the, the, the human rights conventions, which all uh, major states have signed, but which they um, easily set aside uh, when something uh, seems to be so dangerous that it poses an existential threat to us. So that is part of the securitization process and in what I tried to explain earlier is that there is a kind of a scale of threat representations and the more dangerous you make something look like the more you will be able to to break core rules the more gross the violence you can employ against that subject becomes uh, so in the case of Uh, of Chechnya, really, you know, the breaking of all, all the fundamental human rights which are enshrined in the Russian constitution from uh, 1993 in such a gross fa fashion, which happened during the Second Chechen War, the ability to do that hinges on this understanding of uh, uh, Chechnya Um, the Chechen Republic, the, in, the, the entire Chechen Republic, in fact, merely as uh, a terrorist threat. So this is kind of a, a slippery slope, of course, which many Western states is, is going down as well. But, but for Russia, it's particularly problematic because they're, um, they have such, you know, the roots for keeping the human rights sacred are, are much weaker than in the Western context. So, so what I'm trying to show is also how really this uh, terrorist discourse and this, this war on terror in, in Chechnya really set aside um, the respect for the human rights in, uh, in Russia. And following on from that, uh, you could say that Uh, this was, the, in a way, the beginning of what we have seen uh, um, throughout uh, the Putin's uh, time as, as a president, where it's easier and easier to break 
these rules uh, of the game. And in fact, you know, from Chechnya is the most gross example of really breaching the the, the core human rights uh, of right to life, freedom from torture. Uh, yeah. And how does your research apply to the broader war studies? And for example, um, Russia's involvement in Syria. Is there something, you know, um, that your research can help understand us about these political developments? Yes, absolutely. And I, I say that in, in the beginning of my book, that, you know, this, this particular case study is about how the Chechen war uh, became acceptable in the Russian polity. But you can use the framework, which I uh, develop in the book, to uh, analyze how the intervention in, in Ukraine uh, became a legitimate undertaking, how uh, Russia operates in, uh, in Syria. And, and the core point here is, of course, that any war is launched with a narrative of uh, the other being a threat. So if you look into the uh, Ukrainian case, then of course it was not the terrorist label which was attached uh, to the uh, to the new leadership in in uh, Kiev, but it was the, the the Nazi or the fascist label which was attached to them to create this uh, this distance between Russia and the new regime in 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 Kiev, and to say that you know this is something. Uh, dangerous and, and 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 different from us, and of course here again the the point of you know habitual enemies is is very relevant because if you if there's one habitual another habitual enemy for Russia it is uh, you know the the from the Second World War and 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 the Nazis, so pinning this label on the Kiev regime really has resonance in the Russian polity. And then similarly, the reasoning and the, the, the attempts to legitimize the uh, intervention in Syria is again the terrorists, of course, uh, which you find if you look at, you know, the speeches of Putin, you find this refrain and actually uh, binding the narrative of the threat to the very specific Chechen uh, situation within Russia and then bringing it down uh, to Syria and saying this is the same very dangerous evil threat we're we're facing in in Syria, and even saying it's better to you know to kill off the terrorists in Syria than to have them come back home. So my claim is that the, that the framework which I develop in the book really is uh, useful for understanding how war becomes a legitimate undertaking uh, in. In Russia, and then of course there's a difference in the sense that the media sphere looks different today than it did in 1999 in, in Russia because it was at that point where I'm, uh, the Chechen war happened. The media was still quite free to write what they want. At the same time, I think it's important to say that, and we seem sometimes to think that it's Putin alone who does all this. And that is not true, because if you look into uh, the way they talk in the Duma um, or in the Federation Council, uh, you find that the securitization of the Ukrainian threat, let's say, um, is very much a collective endeavor. 
it's not only the Russian leadership. It's it has a much broader uh, basis in in Russian um, society. So in this sense, I, I think the 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 framework which I develop is is quite uh, relevant for understanding when Russia goes to war, whether it's in uh, in Chechnya or in, in Ukraine or in Syria. Well, Julie, this has been an incredibly interesting interview, and thank you for giving me so much of your time. Um, before we say goodbye, I wanted to ask our last traditional question, and that is, what are you working on right now? What have you been up to after Russia's securitization of Chechnya? I'm working on several different things, as we have to when you work in a research institute such as NUPI. So I have been doing some work on trying to explain the very tight relation between Putin and Ramsan Kadyrov, who's today the head of Chechnya, as a, as a kinship relation. How that, how the link between the Russian ruler and Chechnya today is made up of very personal kinship-style relation between those two people. So that's one thing I've been working on. Uh, and then secondly, working on now, a study on Russia-Western interaction uh, in the war uh, on, on Syria, taking as a point of departure that Putin invited uh, at the General Assembly in 2015, invited to, to you know, into a broad coalition to fight international terrorism in Syria, and then asking the question, why? And actually, the, the, the US leadership uh, responded fairly positively, saying that, you know, that this could be possible. So the question we're asking in this uh, piece of research is, why did it not succeed? And our model is kind of builds on the same discourse, theoretic, social understanding of how politics works. So we're trying to say that even if there is an expressed intent to cooperate in Syria, at this specific point in time, the leadership, both in Russia and on the Western side, have these very ingrained uh, enemy images of each other. So Russia looks upon the West with its NATO expansions, its color revolutions and so on as a threat to its security. And the West, in particular the US maybe, is projecting uh, Russia since the annexation of Crimea is projecting Russia as a threat to the US. So that's one point we make. But this is a difficult uh, starting point and it matters when states want to collaborate, how they look upon each other, what kind of image they have. Is this a friend or is it a foe? And then we also look into the what we call the domestic debates and how the internal choir of voices inside the U.S. as well as inside Russia, how they speak about uh, the, other, um, the other state and how this domestic debate impinges on and makes it really difficult for the top leadership to negotiate. And what we find, of course, that when Russia is portrayed as a liar, as a cheat, and increasingly so as the as the American election um, campaign rolled on, uh, the more difficult it is actually for uh, Obama and Kerry to negotiate with Russia because it's like negotiating with the devil if you have this type of domestic debate. And it's the same on uh, on the Russian side when. 
the Russian leadership has, in a way, aroused this uh, understanding of uh, the West as a threat. It this these representations of the the West, the West they keep they keep reappearing in in the Russian domestic debate, and it makes it. Um, and, and the, the Russian leadership constantly harks back to these representations of, of the West as somebody you can't rely on, that actually are not willing to negotiate in Syria, but instead want to arm the opposition against Assad and so on. So we're trying to kind of uh, pin down this social game, which makes it really difficult to collaborate on uh, a specific um tasks such as fighting international uh, terrorism in, in Syria, uh, even if, you know, there's a stated interest in actually collaborating uh, at the beginning. So we're kind of, we're showing how, and of course it all came apart this autumn, the, the, the negotiations uh, to collaborate, they all, they, they, they came apart. They did not, uh, they did not happen. Instead, it was Russia together with Iran and uh, Turkey who have now been negotiating so-called a, a peace solution to trying to negotiate a peace solution to to the Syria crisis in, in Astana and the US isn't even part of the negotiation. So that's what I'm working on now. That sounds really fascinating and I'm wishing you the best of luck with this well, interesting project and uh, thank you a lot for being with us today. Thank you so much for asking me to, to present my book. Good luck, Julie, and goodbye. So this was my conversation with Julie Wilhelmsen, author of the book Russia's Securitization of Chechnya, How War Became Acceptable. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and please stay tuned for more episodes of new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. Until then, this was your host, Olga Breininger, and take care.